0: listening to Vet Candy. I've been in the field of uh, veterinary dermatology for over 15 years, and this is the first case that I've recognized in a cat. And I say recognized because we can't always do a full workup on things, so maybe there was a case that crossed my table at some point, but this is the first one that I've diagnosed and I
1: was shocked. This episode is brought to you by Credelio for Cats. Mm. Welcome to the Vet Mysteries podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Dr. DrCourtneyDVM and at MyVetCandy. Now, let's get started. When I say we have experts and key opinion leaders, we are in for a real treat today. Uh, when I talk about key opinion leaders, there is no one else, no one else that I would want to talk to in the field of dermatology besides Dr. Joya Griffin. So, I, Dr. Joya, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. You'd do anything to protect the special bond between you and your cat. Now is the time to ask your veterinarian about Credelio Cat honor. Protect your cat and stay Credelio close.
1: Yes, I'm absolutely. It is okay to say Dr. Joya, right?
0: Yeah, you can call me okay, Dr. Joya. Okay, perfect.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dr. Joy, this is amazing because we have, obviously, I'm a huge fan in full disclosure, and uh, I've been watching you for a really long time, just your elevation, or as they say, your glow up, and it's just so nice to see that. But before we talk about that glow up, do, do me a favor and just set the scene. How did you know? you know? First and foremost, set the scene. What was it like where you were growing up?
0: I'm from Dayton, Ohio. Um, it's a city, but a smaller size city. And I um, went to a small Christian school and had, you know, my parents and a little sister <laughs> and lots of animals. I ended lots up of, animals. Lot of animals.
1: It was it for a lot of veterinarians. It is that initial interaction with animals and their fascination with animals that can guide them or sort of stimulate them to pursue their veterinary dreams. Was that the case for you? How did you know you wanted to become a veterinarian?
0: I think that is absolutely true. I mean, um, unlike some other fields, you pretty much know when you're young, um, at least by middle school, early high school, if you want to be a veterinarian. And I was probably about seven years old when I first, you know, kind of had a strong, knew that I had a strong um, connection with animals, with the first cats that I owned. My family were kind of uh, low-key cat breeders by accident um, just because we tended to have a litter or two each summer and we didn't have a whole lot of money to spay our cats. So um, we would have a litter. We loved them. They were born in our home, sometimes under our beds. The last of that lineage of cats passed away last summer. So it was a long family tradition.
1: Sad to hear that they passed away. However, I think that that experience from seeing that full cycle of life is something that a lot of people don't get to see. They may adopt a cat or welcome a feline family member into their home, at either at a young age, middle age, or even older age geriatric cat. And they see, and they, that cat will eventually part ways or say goodbye, but they don't actually get to see the process, the queening process. Yeah. So that is um, actually pretty fascinating that you got That's to special. see the full cycle of life. Now you take that aspiration, that veterinary aspiration, and it leads to becoming a veterinary dermatologist. How did you arrive? How did you start and stimulate that goal in mind?
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's an often asked question. And it really started with my own animals. Um, My family replaced me with a dog named Gizmo when I went away to college. (laughs) And uh, she was a Lhasa Apso who had terrible skin disease. I mean, terrible, like nothing that you would typically see in clinical practice, unless the animal is not receiving a whole lot of veterinary care. Um, And this is, you know, over 20 years ago. So back then we didn't have the great flea control products that we do now. We didn't have the very specific anti-itch medications. We had none of that. It was steroids. This is back in the day where you would flea bomb your home. Um, We had uh, very little options and her skin was severe. Um, She ended up being diagnosed eventually with atopic dermatitis, but we couldn't get the care that we needed for her locally. And so four years after having her and her struggling and having to live in an e-collar and scratching her skin until it bled, if she wasn't in that e-collar, I took her to Cornell with me when I started vet school and I took her straight to the dermatology service. And I was able to see firsthand the transformation that they were able to make. This was a dog that um, people, Had recommended that we euthanize her because they felt like she looked, you know, so miserable and was miserable. And we gave her a chance, and she ended up living to be 13 and had a great, happy, healthy life. Regrew hair, came out of her cone, and um, that meant the world to me and my family. And I wanted to be able to give that same relief and quality of life back to my patients. So that's how I um, chose the field. And so it was pretty early on in vet school, and I just started, you know, focusing in on
1: how to get there. Sounds like she was really suffering. You know, we tend to think about skin disease in terms of the quality of life, the infection, the scratching, the discomfort, and just affecting their overall disposition and quality of life. But we rarely extend that thinking into an actual loss of life. It could lead to euthanasia because the skin is so bad. I'd love to know if you saw a change in disposition. Like, did she just feel better having skin that was no longer inflamed?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was happy again. She was a great dog. I mean, she was a Lhasa opso, so don't get me wrong. She was cranky at times. That is a cranky breed, but she was just so full of life. She loved people. She would roll over and show belly whenever she met someone new so they could rub her. And she just, she was great. And I um, was fortunate to have a lot more time with her. I didn't expect that when she was so young, we didn't think the dog was going to really make it just because her, you know, she was miserable.
1: Speaking of having more time, you do so much, so much. I mean, you, I, I can't even list all the things. Sometimes I think about all the things you do, and it literally makes me tired just thinking about it. So before we move on, just tell us something a little bit mysterious about yourself. This is a, myst- a Vet Mysteries podcast, something that people wouldn't ordinarily know.
0: Oh, it's such a loaded question. I mean, there's so many things. Is it about having more time? What's, what do you need to know? Well, <laughs> I, I will
1: definitely say number one, the first rule of the Mysteries <laughs> podcast is anything that you are comfortable sharing for sure. We certainly don't want to do anything that is uncomfortable. Do, I mean, fa- do, do, do the audience a favor. One thing that is tremendously mysterious for a lot of people when they see your level of success is How did a veterinarian get her own show? This is incredible. Tell us a little bit about your own show and the mystery surrounding how a vet makes a break into the media.
0: So um, it's definitely not a lot of what I did, but some of it is. Um, I think the biggest thing was betting on myself and saying yes. And so an opportunity kind of arose where someone was looking for a veterinary version of Dr. Pimple Popper and I responded to the inquiry, Um, I think a lot of people will say, well, that's not me. Oh, no, I'm not good for that. Or, you know, they'd have a lot of self-doubt. And I said, no, that is me. That's me. And so I said, yes, initially. And then I started showing this production company, what I did in the clinic and the cases that we were able to transform and the lives we were able to make better and some of the ooey gooey gross things that we do, and they loved it. And so I think a lot of it was really just Betting on myself and saying I think I'm the one, and I'm um, having that faith that I could do something that I never even considered before. So I, I really didn't start my vet career thinking that I would have a television show, but it's an extremely amazing um, cherry on top,
1: <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it really is. I, I do relate any sort of media endeavor to preparing and training for a race that you didn't even realize you were going to run. For everybody out there, what yes, is the name that. of your show?
0: The show is called Pop Goes the Vet with Dr. Joya. It's It is a Nat Geo wild show and it streams on Disney+. It's a really cute show. I have an amazing team. We have a lot of fun together. So you see some of that and you see the transformations of the patients that we treat, as well as some of the um, nasty things that I like to pop, which I really love that. Like, I'm not a surgeon, but I do like to cut little things off and I like to cut inside and see what they are. It's sort of like a puppy surprise for me. (laughs) Like You just never know what's in there and the grosser, the better. And then I always say to the dog, look what you made. You made this.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Dr. Joya, but pop goes the vet with Dr. Joya. You know, you said the grosser, the better, and you never know what you're going to get. And that's actually what we're here to talk about today. We're actually here to talk about the grossest of the gross, the worst of the worst. You never know what you're going to get. So help us out. It sounds like part of the mystery is you might have been dealing with a cat who actually had a semi-rare and somewhat mysterious disease.
0: I would say very rare. I mean, this is the first time that I've recognized this disease in a cat. Um, I've had a few dogs I, and I'm not an internist. So I think as an internal medicine, you might see this disease a little bit more commonly because it affects other organ systems more commonly than it affects the skin. So I was uh, caught off guard by it and it's kind of a cool one.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. What's the name of the kitty cat? So her name was Paraj. Help us out with the signalment and tell us about the first day that parage Walked into your hospital.
0: Yes. So Paraj was a six-year-old female spayed domestic short hair. She lived at home, indoor-only cat. Uh, I can't recall if she was adopted as a kitten, so I don't. I don't have that in my history. But she had been in that family for many years. There was another cat at home, and she had about a four-month or so history of these non-healing wounds on her back end and she had been on a couple rounds of antibiotics and they just, they hadn't healed. So she came in to me for these wounds and they were they were tender. Um, mom had been bandaging them, which is always interesting in bandaging wounds in the hip region. It's not very easy to do. I have seen all kinds of contraptions and you've probably seen it too, the way people bandage things. I mean, sometimes they'll just stick the band aid onto the fur
1: and then it gets like all you know <laughs> like it's it gets on pretty forehead. gross yeah there's yeah. actually to the point where i have definitely had to advise people that a bad bandage is worse than no bandage so please yes. don't try bandaging so yes. yeah absolutely so <laughs> you are seeing this kitty cat she comes in she's got all kinds of contraptions and bandages in the in her flank region or just in her groin region what does she look like to you what does parage look like to you what's her body condition look like
0: so her body condition was pretty normal I mean she was average sized cat not overweight not really underweight at that point but she did have these really nasty wounds they had draining tracks there was a larger kind of soft tissue swelling over the flank region she also had a couple small draining tracks on the ventrum but they were fairly fairly insignificant and what was also weird was that she had a couple of lesions around her muzzle and uh, mom and dad really weren't so concerned about those, they kept focusing on the largest lesion, which was on the back. And they had postulated that this was a wound that had occurred between her and the other cat, but wounds to this degree in housemates would be fairly uncommon. I wasn't really buying that history, but I suppose it could happen. I did have a case many, many years ago in my internship with a cat that was indoor only, presented to the ER service with these really nasty wounds on the ventrum that turned out through talking to people a little bit longer, a dog had attacked the cat when they weren't home. And then weeks later, the infection sets in because they didn't notice that, you know, the trauma had occurred to the fat pad of the belly and you know how that goes. (laughs) So I thought, okay, maybe this cat could have been injured in the home, but there were no dogs. They hadn't reported a history of these cats being in I guess in a war <laughs> against each other. So it just, it didn't really quite fit, but I said, okay, I suppose that could be the case.
1: So bite wounds are one of your top differentials for this kitty cat. You've seen these horrible wounds, anything else that's percolating through your mind, because as soon as parage comes in, you're like, whoa, this looks pretty intense. And, you know, as a specialist, as a dermatologist, you're thinking in your head, okay, common things occur commonly. So you're thinking bite wounds, is parage also indoor outdoor?
0: She was only indoor, um, but I worried that maybe the bite wound had become infected and then become resistant. And that's why the previous, you know, antibiotics hadn't worked. The family veterinarian had put her on um, marbofloxacin as well as um, amoxicillin and clavuronic acid, and they hadn't gotten anywhere. And both of those antibiotics are fairly good antibiotics. So I was worried that maybe there was a resistant infection. And then when I started to think about other differentials, um, of course, You know, you can have mycobacterial infections. I see those fairly commonly in cats, even though that's not very common disease, that does happen usually in indoor outdoor cats, but strange things can occur. So that was a differential. And um, of course, neoplasia is possible, but it was multifocal. So that would be a little unusual for neoplasia. And the cat was only six. So those were the main things I was thinking about, potentially fungal, but again, it was an indoor only cat, so that'd be much less likely. And um, I started to talk to them about differentials and then the workup that I wanted to do that day.
1: For all of our uh, pet lovers out there, neoplasia is something that you, we always think about and it has, it's something that pops in on your head. You constantly have to think about it. When you started talking to her about the diagnostics and the workup that you wanted to do, what did you do and why did you do it in that particular order?
0: So, I'm a, I'm a dermatologist, so we cytology everything. Um, so, I took a sample from the pus that was coming out of the lesion, and it, it was pretty nasty. I mean, when we peeled back this bandage, it was very sore and painful. She um, had an erosive lesion. There was some swollen tissue around it and these kind of deeper pockets. So, I could buy an abscess, but the question just was, why? So, I sampled from the the um, purulent debris, the pus that was there and looked at it under the microscope and saw lots of bacteria, um, lots of different white blood cells, you know, neutrophils, macrophages. So it was indicating that this was something that was a little bit deeper. At that point, we decided to go in kind of a stepwise way. Um, so instead of biopsing that day, we submitted a culture. So we started there. Um, I also added on Pentoxy because my Train of thought at the time was okay if this is a deep resistant infection or even some sort of pyogranulomatous immune-mediated disease let's add on pentoxyphylline, which is a drug that has a lot of uh, anti-inflammatory properties and it also helps with wound healing it improves blood flow to tissue so we started that while we waited for the culture
1: fascinating stuff partly because when we think about wound healing Uh, It really takes a village in terms of pharmaceuticals and sometimes in terms of specialists and doctors, it takes a village to really ramp up everything and harness the body's natural biology to get this to heal. When we think about cytology or the analysis of cells, what's in that goop and soup that you're looking at, were you concerned at all about when you're looking at this goop that you wouldn't necessarily glean anything useful because it would just be a mixed population? of inflammation in bacteria and maybe commensal organisms that live on the skin. Did you have any concerns about the diagnostic yield of doing a cytology?
0: Yeah, I mean, you can get cytology that doesn't really lead you in the right direction for sure. But if you see bacteria, especially if it's intracellular, then there is infection. So I think it's always worth treating. If this had been more of a sterile process, I would have pushed at that point towards the biopsy and prioritized that over the culture but there was a lot of bacteria there, which, you know, sometimes that's red hair. You know, it's kind of throwing us something else at you. There still could have been an underlying cause that we didn't know about, but we wanted to kind of go piece by piece for them, mostly because they were being a little bit more conservative with finances. So we couldn't do everything that day.
1: That's genius stuff. So when we think about performing a culture, partly in doing the culture, there is that reflex because you've done this so many times, you've seen this so many times, you know exactly what to do. But then you also recognize that the cytology, the presence of that bacteria, stimulated you to say, well, let's do a culture. And so for all the pet parents listening out there who may be thinking, saying, well, why does a specialist have to do all of these steps? Is that one, not only do each of them give us different information, but one could lead into the other. Now, there are some people out of love who will see their cat with a wound and instantly want to put something on it, right? They want to put some sort of antiseptic ointment or they want to put some antibacterial ointment. Talk to us about the use of over-the-counter antibacterial ointments before going to see a dermatologist for that culture. Will using an antibacterial surface ointment influence that ability to get a really accurate culture when you sample that?
0: Yes, absolutely. You, You could negatively affect the culture if there is a lot of antimicrobials on the surface of something but most of the time you can be fairly assured if the dermatologist is seeing that much bacteria that the bacteria probably will grow but we ask our um, pet parents before they come in to us for their initial appointments to stop all current therapy steroids you know their bathing routine especially so we can get good cytology and that includes anything they're slathering on the pet so we can actually see what's going on and then if we need to we can get an accurate culture
1: excellent so we start the pentoxyphyline. we're still on marble phloxacin uh what's your fluoroquinolone antibiotic very powerful stuff and then there was another antibiotic that you also mentioned they were also doing clavamox. Clavamox as well which is a really common uh, antibiotic and we'll see the the homologous version on the human side called called augmentin so we're prescribing these and then how is the cat doing is she how is she is she getting better
0: More than anything, she was just about the same. And we get cultures back usually in five to seven days. So I did receive that culture back and she had a methicillin-resistant staph aureus, a MRSA, um, which concerns people a lot because MRSAs are common in human medicine and um, can be definitely a concern because they can be nasty wounds and require sometimes um, surgical intervention and or very intense um, antibiotics that are reserved for methicillin-resistant staph. So that always worries my pet parents, but but staph aureus is a common bacteria in cats. So this um, finding this didn't necessarily mean that this was something that had come from the pet parents or something that they should be overly concerned about getting as long as they had normal immune systems. So um, people hear MRSA and they freak out. For her, uh, a staph aureus that became resistant can make sense because she had been on several months of antibiotics without improvement. So that could have developed. In a dog, you would rarely see MRSA. Uh, That's more commonly a cat or human thing. In dogs, it would be a methicillin-resistant staph suit intermediate, so a little bit different. But a lot of times people use the nomenclature together, but dogs don't generally get MRSAs.
1: So the mystery is deepening at this point because we're thinking about organisms and the name and the enemy of the organism is so critically important because we know that when we know the name, when we know the enemy and who wh- where the enemy is, that can tell us a lot about it, right? You just mentioned uh, uh MRSA and how that is a concern on the human side. It is expected more or less to use a common word on the, on the feline side and rare on the canine side. And so yes. these getting an answer via culture and knowing the, species, <laughs> knowing the species that you're working on is critically important in unraveling this mystery. And so as you get this back, you have a cytology now, you have a culture. At any point, did this cat have sort of a basic blood panel to look at overall health?
0: So she had had a blood panel about six to eight weeks before she came in to see me. So I had not repeated it yet at that point, Um, but that was something that we talked about doing as well. And I think she was still eating fairly well, but the wound, you know, we're only days into treatment. The wound was about the same.
1: Absolutely. So it, at that point, once you realize that you have a MRSA infection and the wound is about the same, she's on some of the bigger gun antibiotics, to use a colloquial expression there. She's on a fluoroquinolone pentoxyphylline. So we did anapet- have to change, change antibiotics. Yeah. You decided, what did you decide to do at that point?
0: So, based off of, sorry to step over you. Yeah, please. <laughs> it doesn't work well for
1: podcasts. No, please, please. please <laughs> um, this, so, is, this is genius stuff.
0: Based off of the culture, we chose to put her on clindamycin, which is a common antibiotic. It's not commonly used that much, but it is used in feline medicine, I would say, more frequently than in canine medicine. And so we were able to stop the other two antibiotics and start clindamycin, which comes as a liquid, is easy to give for the most part. And we started that, continued with filing, and kind of were in a wait-and-see approach at that point.
1: Paraj is now on clindamycin. She, fortunate for Paraj, she's taking the antibiotics pretty well, correct?
0: Yes, they didn't report any issues there.
1: Okay, because that can always be a challenge with cats in general. They, they decide to froth at the mouth and reject everything you have. So you're on clindamycin, pentoxy, finally, we're on a little bit of a waiting game. And then at what point did you realize, I don't know if this is working as well as I'd like to?
0: So I usually put in after starting an antibiotic, at least three to four weeks, um, put in a recheck after that with skin infections, especially things that are a little bit deeper, the change is not going to happen immediately. These are not bladder infections. You know, these are skin takes a while to heal. And so, um, one thing that I often see is that antibiotics are not given long enough to treat a skin infection. So we gave her, um, a month from the initial visit for this medication protocol to work. Um, pentoxifylline is also a medication that is a slow starting medication and it takes about four to six weeks to really kick in. So she came back in in a month and unfortunately things were not better. They actually looked a little bit worse. She had um, expansion of the wound over the dorsum. There were a few more draining tracks on the ventrum
1: and she had more lesions on the muzzle around the lips there's a, the wound is getting worse. It's expanding. Now she has other lesions all over her face. What is the, you know, as veterinarians, of course we, our number one focus is always the patient, right? We want them to get better, but then the families as well, we know that these types of lesions can really disturb families. What is, what is the family feeling and saying at this point? They were
0: definitely worried about her um, because she was starting to just know be a little lethargic her appetite was down some and they were willing to do what they needed to get to the answer which can be hard Uh, my next recommendation of course was to biopsy because i was worried about autoimmune um, worried about deep infection whether that's mycobacterial or fungal infection um, and also worried about cancer and so we we did go um, to the next step, which was to biopsy
1: the tissue, and before you got in. to before you got to biopsy,ing uh, you mentioned that they were worried. I mean, and you also made allusions to the fact that there was some uh, financial concerns. How did that conversation go? What did you say, and and what did they say in response?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I think initially, if, you know, in a best case scenario, you want to do a full workup. So I would have normally recommended a culture biopsy and repeat lab work with the CBC and chem at the first visit which was recommended but we decided to go in a stepwise you know nature to kind of conserve finances and then you know to go off of the easy diagnosis as opposed to what could be the worst diagnosis and so you know an abscess that's badly infected okay let's go that direction and so that's where we started and then when we get to a month in and we're no better i said to them you know we have to buy up today if we're going to figure out what this is because i don't know what it is she's not getting better and it could be a lot of different things and so just to keep changing our medication protocol without really knowing is going to be unfruitful for us we did choose at that point um, when they did elect to biopsy to start a little bit of a different therapy, just in case my second um, differential was right.
1: You did start a different antibiotic at this point.
0: Not an antibiotic. I actually started atopica or cyclosporine um, in case this was a piogranulomatous immune mediated process um, because she had multifocal lesions and that can happen where the body just starts to attack the skin. And so we started a tapering course of a steroid and atopica or
1: cyclosporin. You're also fighting infection and using cyclosporin or a, a medication that has the ability to sort of modulate the immune system, even possibly even suppress the immune system. Were there concerns you had about in the midst of a sort of a raging and fulminant infection is either suppressing or modulating the immune system?
0: Yeah, there, there is always a concern um, when you start an immunosuppressive or potentially immunosuppressive drug when they have bad infection. The good thing was, was I, I was still covering her with the antibiotic based off of the previous culture. And the doses that I started her on were not immunosuppressive doses. They were more in the anti-inflammatory range. So with cyclosporine, um, that liquid, you can give it to cats for things as simple as allergies. And so we started her at that dose. So it wasn't a super high dose. And then her um, steroid dose was more of an anti-inflammatory dose as opposed to immunosuppressive. So I wanted to get that started. If the biopsy um, results Indicated that this was something that was consistent with immune mediated disease. Then the plan was to potentially high go to higher doses of medications
1: if we needed to. Fortunately, they agreed to go forward with a biopsy and you went ahead and performed the biopsy, but there's so many different ways to do a biopsy. There's so many different ways to to kind of get the juice essentially out of the fruit. How do you how did you find a way to get a sample and what technique did you opt for?
0: So with, um, skin biopsies, it is really important to, to use proper technique. Um, and it's a little bit different than what you would probably do as a surgeon because we don't, uh, surgically prep the areas. Uh, so we don't want to make them sterile. I don't want to scrub. I don't want to, um, remove some of that surface information because that's where the histopathologist needs to see. So we, <laughs> we just, uh, it's like where we, where we, uh, part ways, I think, yeah, <laughs> in the way sure, that we sure. do our procedures, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll yeah. I have people like a surgeon will watch the show and they're like, oh my God, this isn't sterile, but it's skin. And so skin is really not a sterile on our end of things as a dermatologist, not a sterile, sterile thing. But we did have to sedate her and we clip the longer hairs around the lesions. The one thing that I would give a novice, um, veterinarian, a young graduate, advice on is two things actually. The first thing would be, you know, don't surgically prep or clip close to the skin because you'll remove the surface information, you know, the surface crust, things like that. Two, you want to never biopsy an ulcer or a deep draining tract. You want to biopsy right adjacent to it because if you biopsy an ulcer, the histopathologist will call back and say, Uh, an ulcer, (laughs) which we know clinically. So we wanna see the inflammation adjacent to that ulcerative lesion. Um, What's causing the ulcer, we wanna see what kind of cells are there. So you always biopsy adjacent to those. And then um, the third thing actually, tip would be to choose a good dermatopathologist if you can. So some of the reference laboratories, you can do a derm review on your samples, um, or you can choose a, a specific dermatopathologist who has experience in some of these kind of
1: weird unusual skin diseases. That's fascinating stuff and Obviously, to you, this is just, you know, it is like a Sunday morning. It is so just simple and straightforward. But for a lot of young veterinarians, this is absolute uh, intellectual gold. So we're just going to repeat this for everybody out there. Number one, do not clean or sterily prep the surface and don't shave because there's a lot of information there and commensal organisms and just organisms in general that you need to culture. And number two, when you say, you know, don't biopsy an ulcer, is it important to biopsy just adjacent to that ulcer, or you want to make sure that you include the intersection of the tissue adjacent to and the ulcer itself.
0: Ideally, do not go away from the ulcer because if you biopsy part of the ulcer, when they block that tissue because they block tissue in half, they potentially could get the side that has just the ulcer. So it's wiser to feel around, okay, if there's a crust, that's great. If there's a intact pustule, that's great, biopsy those lesions. Or if there's, you know swollen tissue, around the ulcer, get that, but you want to get the full lesion if possible.
1: And then is there a number of lesions that you want to make sure that you submit? Sometimes when I'm submitting a tissue, I try to overwhelm the pathologist with volume, right? So it's like, I dare you not to get an answer from all of this tissue that you have. Is there a minimum or maximum number of, of samples that you submit when you're biopsying?
0: If it's haired skin, I mean, and there's multiple lesions, you want to send at least three to four samples if possible. And I always say, go big or go home. You don't want to send the two millimeter punch biopsy and one piece like that is pretty much (laughs) going to lower your odds of getting an answer. So if you send multiple pieces and ideally, you know, at least six millimeter punch biopsies, um, maybe even eight, that would be even better.
1: You mentioned, um, a really novel concept for some people. This is a concept that you and I are familiar with constantly, but for some people, this is a novel concept, and that is a what's called a special interest or subspecialty. You're a specialist. So of course you know the ins and outs about skin, but pathologists are also specialists in that they can look at tissue on the microanatomic level and decide, get a diagnosis as to what's going on in that particular tissue. But what your recommendation is is not only to find a pathologist, someone who's already a specialist, but to find some a pathologist who has a special interest in skin or who is actually has a subspecial. Specialty in analyzing skin. Why do you think that's important?
0: It's very important because some of these lesions are bizarre and they, they can be missed by someone who isn't used to looking at skin and different species have different inflammatory processes. So cats and horses, they often put eosinophils in their skin with, with all kinds of inflammatory diseases. Dogs don't do that as much. And there are certain diseases that each species may have that reaction patterns are a little bit different. I think if you are, you know, sending in something that you think is cancer, and it's a fairly typical form of cancer, you know, on the skin, most pathologists can do that. But when you're looking at these more unusual inflammatory diseases, I think it's important to have a um, dermatopathologist or someone who has a special interest in looking at skin to read them out. (music) We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the Desk Wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio.
1: Don't prep, don't biopsy an ulcer, and find a subspecialist. Now, the second is you get that pathology result back, and what does that pathology result say?
0: So unfortunately, and oddly, it came back as blastomycosis. I've been in the field of uh, veterinary dermatology for over 15 years. And this is the first case that I've recognized in a cat. And I say recognized because we can't always do a full workup on things. So maybe there was a case that crossed my table at some point, but this is the first one that I've diagnosed and I was
1: shocked. What went through your mind the first time that you saw that diagnosis?
0: Concern, um, extreme concern. This is a disease that is a fungal organism, but it's often associated with poor outcomes. And these lesions were multifocal. So she had lesions on her face, the belly, the back. So it was uh, pretty disseminated. I was worried that she had fungal disease internally and that this was the skin's manifestation of that. So maybe she had it in her lungs and it was going to the skin. Sometimes that occurs. And so I was just really kind of confounded by why she had it, especially in an indoor only cat. Like it just didn't make sense.
1: Yeah, indoor-only cat. Listen, this is fascinating stuff because when we talk about blastomycosis, when we talk about fungal organisms, organisms, we're thinking about these organisms that typically live in the soil, right? We typically expect them to be in this acidic soil with d- decaying vegetation and dogs who tend to dig and uh, sighthounds who are hunting. And these are the classic scenarios. But uh, you have an indoor cat who has blastomycosis, a disease that typically lives in the soil, and you know that it could be affecting the the whole body. Two questions. Was it affecting the whole body? And where do you think Baraj got it from?
0: And I don't know at this point the answer to either of those questions. I was worried that it had affected internal systems because she was doing so poorly. She had started to become lethargic. (coughs) Her appetite was down. But as far as where she got it from, I had no clue. In talking to her pet parents, they the only thing that they kept saying was they do a lot of gardening and they bring in soil from outside for potted plants. But it's still, I mean, these usually, if it's a cutaneous form of blastomycosis, it's a wound inoculation. So there has to be some sort of surface trauma. I mean, these aren't fungal organisms that eat through healthy skin. There has to be a way it got in. And so it just, it still didn't really make sense to me, but they, that's what they felt had happened.
1: Well, that's really important. And when we talk about uh, infectious disease and we always think about, you know, would my pet be exposed? And not that there's a a vaccine for blastomycosis, but when we talk about vaccines, sometimes I'll hear pet parents say, well, I don't vaccinate my cats because they never go outside. And my answer to them is, do you go outside? Right. Because if you go outside, there are things, unfortunately, the invisible enemies that live outdoors that can come into the house. Again, let me repeat, there is no vaccine that I'm aware of for blastomycosis. But I think the underlying message is that there are things outside, there are invisible enemies outside that you could possibly bring in. Now, what's filled the news, what's absolutely filled the news is the idea of zoonoses, right? We think about uh, the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, quote unquote, can I I give it to my dog? Can my dog give it to me? Now what seems to be in the public zeitgeist is monkeypox. Can I give it to uh, an animal? Can an animal give it to me? And so the natural question is with blastomycosis is could their kitten or could their cat give that to the family? Could the the cat transmit blastomycosis to them?
0: Fortunately, the answer to that is very rare. It would be very, very rare for an animal to transmit it to another pet or to a person, thankfully, because this cat obviously has like purulent lesions oozing open you know in the environment so um thankfully with this disease that's not a concern because otherwise okay. i mean what would you do
1: that's perfect so that's really good news we don't feel like blastomycosis is zoonotic however my question to you is also do you feel it could serve as a, a sentinel disease meaning if there is environmental exposure of blastomycosis in the soil and your kitty cat comes down with blastomycosis is that a sentinel is that the canary in the coal mine sounding the alarm to the humans you also might be exposed to, not necessarily from your cat, but from environmental contamination.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely a great point to make. Um, You know, I've had another patient years ago that had um, blastomycosis in the chest and the mom, they lived on a farm, a horse farm. So in that case, you know, this herding dog, I think he was some sort of um, like collie. He, he got it from outside, you know, we, we know that and. You know, there is a concern that some of her other pets could potentially get it as well. Um, or humans. It is, you know, humans can get it too. Um, thankfully, you know, most of the time we don't. But yes, if it's on your your land or your soil, then yes, potentially you could become at risk as well.
1: I absolutely love that. So you get the diagnosis. What is the treatment for blastomycosis?
0: It's it's a heavy antifungals um, and, you know, for her, because she was ill, I sent her to my husband who's an internist uh for staging basically so i wanted to make sure that we weren't seeing cancer or cancer or god uh, i wanted to make sure that we weren't seeing fungal disease or blastomycosis anywhere internally for her so um the staging process for this would be a you know chest radiographs or x-rays and then an ultrasound of her belly to make sure there wasn't any evidence of anything, anywhere else. Um, and then we also, we wanted to repeat some lab work. So we repeated a CBC and chemistry
1: panel. Now you made a little Freudian slip there. You did say cancer. Now there yeah, are yeah. certain axioms and an old adage that says fungus is worse than cancer. What do, when people say that fungus is worse than cancer, usually they're referencing the treatment for fungus. What is the, the the long-term treatment for this fungus? And why do you think that people say that fungus is worse than cancer?
0: The long-term treatment for her would be systemic antifungals, and the one that is typically used is itriconazole, and luckily now there's a product that is made specifically for cats that's a liquid, and it's a little bit... Less expensive because itraconazole used to be astronomically expensive. So um, we have this product now that we can use. But you know, unfortunately, fungal organisms they just have an an amazing ability to protect themselves in tissue and in the body, and they kind of wall themselves off, and they've got thick cell walls anyway. So it's very hard for antibiotics to penetrate through through that. Um, And in her case, this wasn't a lesion that could be excised or cut out because it was multifocal. So that was. Fairly, it kind of started the ball up. running. We had to push it uphill. <laughs> we were already know, behind yeah. it.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know you're in trouble when you can't call the services of a surgeon. I totally. Understand I know. I from.
0: know the yeah. cut is secure. If no, but that's a good point to to make because occasionally you'll have these fungal organisms that just affect a, a foot. You know, you could amputate, but if it happens, you really need to amputate the entire leg. I mean, fungal diseases are very, very terrible. In some cases, they call them like swamp cancer. There's one fungal organism that's referred to as that, and it can be devastating.
1: At what point did you start to see any improvement? I'm sorry, actually, that's an assumption that there was an improvement. Let me start, let me start over. Was there an improvement? And at what point did you start to see that? So
0: we're about six weeks into treatment um, at this point, and she is not really getting better. She did go see the internist and you know, the chest x-rays were clear, which was good. Um, Nothing was noted on an abdominal ultrasound. And her lab work, it wasn't great. It showed mostly features of um, chronic disease. So she had some mild anemia and she had, you know, an elevated white cell count that often you'll see when you have um, systemic or cutaneous, multifocal cutaneous disease like this. So nothing that was alarming anywhere, but she, wasn't doing well. So the lesions really weren't responding. She was more inappetent and losing some weight at this point.
1: My goodness, my goodness. We are six weeks into treatment. You said she's mildly inappetent?
0: Yes, I, I at that point I think she was anorectic. She really wasn't eating at all. Oh my goodness.
1: And because this is one of the very first times that you have treated this and it's a super rare condition, a lot of people, uh, a lot of veterinarians and dermatologists don't typically treat this. What is your expectation going forward or do you have any expectations?
0: I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but my gut feeling was that she was going to die from this disease just because of how late we found it. So just to remind everyone, she had had lesions four months prior to seeing me. Um, And that's where the pet parents noted it. So she could have had soft tissue swellings or small changes that they hadn't noted until they erupted to the skin and started draining. And you know, I'm now at this point about six months from the onset onset of visible disease. So these lesions could have been there for a very long time. And I think with blasto, it is important to find it pretty early. And it was spreading. And you know, I was worried that this was this was not going to be good news for her.
1: So going forward, this prognosis for Praj, it is unknown. We are not sure ultimately how she's going to do.
0: Right. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where you're, you just do everything that you can and you pray. And, you know, of course we stopped steroids. We stopped atopica and put our faith in this antifungal to see if it was going to work for her.
1: Does Paraj need antifungals and antimicrobials at the and antibiotics at the same time to uh, treat or deal with opportunistic bacterial infections? You can do
0: both. Yes. Um, with, for her, we were just leaning on the intrafungal. I believe that when she came back in for her biopsy that we did not see bacteria at that time.
1: Amazing. Amazing. You mentioned something super important. You said, Courtney, I'm about four months behind because this fungus had, we are having to play catch up because pet parents noted these lesions earlier. Uh, one thing that I think about when I think about this story is if you do see skin lesions in your cat, if you are seeing draining tracks, if you are seeing something that's been nagging your cat, it's always uh, critically important to either get early diagnosis so that your, the dermatologist does not have to play catch up. But then, also, I wanted to ask you: When you think about this case, is there something in pl- putting on your retrospectoscope, thinking about it? Is there something that could have been done in terms of either earlier diagnosis or prevention in this particular case? What What message can we send to uh, the pet parents listening right now?
0: First and foremost, skin disease in general in cats is fairly uncommon. It's just it's uncommon, you know. I do see quite a few cats, but in general, they're itchy cats that have allergies. But spontaneous eruption of lesions in any animal is rare, Um, and cats especially. Like it's just it's just not very common. So I think there should have been some something on the radar initially. Just where did these come from? I mean, this was an indoor only cat, Um, but I, I think that she was treated appropriately initially. You know, you see a wound, you treat it with antibiotics. I mean, that makes sense to me. But after, you know, four, maybe six weeks of antibiotics, if you didn't see improvement, I think culture should have been done sooner or could have been done sooner because a lot of times, you know, and it could have been financial constraints, but you'll see people cycling through classes of antibiotics. And I think earlier culture is always a good idea. And then, um, after that, if they, they had have seen lack of improvement from, um, a culture based antibiotic then, you know, maybe biopsy would have been done a little bit sooner.
1: Biopsy And I. one thing I like about the skin that, that fascinates me is we can take advantage of the fact that it's on the surface, you can see it. And so when you biopsy skin, you're getting essentially what you can see and it helps you. That's in contrast to a liver biopsy or a kidney biopsy or any other type of biopsy. When I think about the skin and the advantages it has in which you can use topical therapies, is there any benefit to using a topical antifungal in this scenario?
0: I think for her case it was just so rare
1: i really don't
0: feel like anyone did anything wrong um i think it's it, she was worked up in a fairly typical way and i could have missed it you know um oh the point that i was going to say is occasionally and a lot of times with these blastomycosis cases you might be able to see the fungal organisms on cytology so i don't know if early on if cytology had been done at the family practitioner but there was a small chance they could have seen it or fungal organisms because you can see them. When Paraj ended up coming back in for um, her recheck at the final visit, we did see lots of fungal organisms on cytology. And um, at that point we could see it. But my cytology prior to that I had not seen
1: the blasted blood-based frequency. budding organisms. Blood-based yes. budding. Blood-based budding organisms. I pulling that out from the archives, I don't even know right. where that came from.
0: Navily study. Navely study, <laughs> there
1: we go. I love it. I love it. You know if I just want to pause for a second and just recognize just how critically important it is that you used all the tools in your disposal. If there's a young vet student listening out there from the point of physical exam, signalment, a good history or anamnesis as it's called and your physical exam and diagnostics and your pharmacology study and knowing your other critical diagnostics including lab work, it's just putting it all together And utilizing a team a village of specialists and experts and key opinion leaders, which is what this Vet Mysteries podcast and what my whole point is in celebrating are people like yourself who are out there celebrating cats lives every day, but we rarely get to hear about these stories until now until now now we get a chance to hear about amazing people like you uh, and we are keeping our fingers crossed and sending healing energy out to Paraj right now you know and just picture those two hands up emoji that everybody likes to send out and that's the energy that I'm sending to Paraj right now
0: we'll be right back with more vet candy Credelio Cat Lodiloner protects your cat from ticks and fleas so you can be close. Credelio Close, the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lodiloner is a member of the Isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio Close.
1: You know, Dr. Joya, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this podcast. Could you do us all a favor and let everybody out there know where they can find you?
0: So um, you can see our me in the clinic on the show, of course, on Disney Plus. It's Top Goes the Vet with Dr. Joya. And I also have a very active Instagram following, and I keep posting um, interesting cases and just the fun that we do in the clinic and the people that we outreach to. And that is called um, Dr. Joya underscore the pet skin vet. So I also have a website and that's um, www.drjoyadvm.com.
1: Drjoyadvm.com. And then your Instagram handle one more time for all the people in the back.
0: It is Dr. Joya underscore the pet skin vet
1: the pet skin vet. This was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Dr. Joya, thank you again. And I hope at some point we can do a round two. Would you be open to that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Oh, right. Fantastic. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Joya Griffin veterinary dermatologist, media extraordinaire, um, lover of sunshine, running mother, just an absolutely fantastic human being, and uh-huh. apparently now a cutaneous blastomycosis expert. And so if you have a case of blasto- cutaneous blastomycosis, wherever you are, make sure that you send them all to Dr. Joy no, Anand. Please, <laughs> please uh, everybody, just it, this was an absolutely fantastic case, truly mysterious. And to a certain extent, the future for Barrage is also mysterious. We do not know ultimately how she will do, but we know this, that everybody is pulling for her full recovery. So that's it. That's another episode of Vet Mysteries Podcast. Please join us for more episodes. Make sure you can find us at Dr. DVM and at MyVetCandy. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And just remember, there is nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Please take care of your pets and each other.
0: Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Bet candy. It's Vet Candy
1: Radio.